This year there will be peace. This year there will be peace. This year there will be peace. There will be peace. There will be peace for my sister and my brother. Peace for my sister and my brother. Peace for my friends and for the others. There will be peace. All of your marriages are healthy. All of your children are strong. This is the year that you'll be wealthy. It won't be too long. Your cat is grateful for your friendship. He is effusive with his praise. He runs to you when you call him. These are the good days. My mom will know how much I love her. My mom will know how much I care. I always do forget to write her, but she is always there. When my Father's Day is over, when my Father's work is done, tell him I am proud to know him and to be called his son. This year you won't get any older This year you won't turn gray All of the songs we sing are bolder All these words will pass away There is no need to worry There is no worry There is no need to worry, there will be peace this year. Welcome to 2024 and the ninth season of The American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. This season, we're very proud to feature as our theme song, This Year, from Blue Ridge-based folk bluegrass ensemble, The Steel Wheels. It's a track off their 2019 studio album, Over the Trees, but I highly recommend their whole catalog, including a new album, Sideways, which will drop next month. The Steel Wheels will also be kicking off a tour in mid-January, starting with three dates in West Virginia, including one in Morgantown. For their full touring schedule and online store, where you can purchase all their albums on vinyl or as direct download, please visit thesteelwheels.com or follow the links from our episode webpage at marktwainstudies.com backslash steel. 
befitting this occasion, we are looking backwards and forwards in this episode, both revisiting some of the questions that drove Criticism Limited, the series that dominated 2023 on the American Vandal, and refining what I expect to become the central concern of this season, corporate allegory. We're going to talk about methods of close reading, about the neoliberal university, and about the conglomerate era, all topics somewhat familiar to regular listeners. But we're also going to talk about an author who I expect is not, Danielle Steele. If you have never read The Queen of Late Capitalist Romance, as I had not before I started prepping for this conversation, fear not, there will be summaries and spoilers aplenty. Into that portion of the conversation, we are led by the Queen's most intrepid critic, Dan Sinekin, an assistant professor of English at Emory University, who is also the author of one of this year's most surprising hits. Dan's book, Big Fiction, How Conglomeration Changed the Publishing Industry in American Literature, published this fall, has been a fixture of the best of 2023 lists. Its generally warm reception from legacy publications has been somewhat surprising, given that it is an academic monograph which offers an incisive critique of an industry into which many of those publications are structurally embedded. We're also joined today by one of Dan's collaborators, Joanna Winant, an assistant professor at West Virginia University. Joanna and Dan are in the finishing stages of a book on close reading for the 21st century, forthcoming from Princeton University Press. And that's where we're going to start our conversation. For more about our guests and a complete bibliography of text discussed in this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash steel or subscribe to my substack at theamericanvandal.substack.com. You have a, a book in the works, a collection in the works, coming out from Princeton University Press in the relatively near future. It's about close reading in the 21st century. And I wanted to start with the question of how did this project get started? What got you interested in close reading as a object of critical examination, as a methodology that needed to have some sort of historicization done in it? And what is distinct, maybe the third part of that question, about close reading in the contemporary compared to its longer history, some of which we covered in last season's. Uh, yeah, so I'll just jump in and Dan should supplement whenever he likes. So first of all, it's close reading for the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Close reading for the 21st century. Okay. So we're not just talking about close reading in the 21st century, but rather about how close reading continues to be useful into the 21st century. And it is a collection, but it's not just a collection. And I feel like I've gone back and forth on how to describe us as both authors and editors, because it falls into three parts. The first part is a very long introduction, probably close to somewhere between 15,000 and 20,000 words. Mm-hmm. So almost the length of one of those very short introductions, those little books. Mm-hmm that Dan and I are co-writing, in which we talk about what close reading is, where it came from, what it offers, and where we think it continues to be useful, where it's going. And that's all for undergraduates. We're really writing for our students at that level. 
And then there is a collection of close to 20 extremely short essays of about 2,000 to 3,000 words each, in which we've invited mostly junior scholars to close read their favorite close readings. In our introduction, we talk about the steps of close reading that we've seen by looking at lots and lots of close readings. And in the essays by the contributors, they analyze their favorite close readings or close readings they think are important using these common terms for the steps that close readings take. And then there's going to be a third part of practical teaching materials after that. Although we're editing the contributed essays and although those are just about half of the book, it's not like we're writing a short preface and then the book is made up only of those essays either. So it's a collaborative project between Dan and I, but then also between more than a dozen of other people as well. In terms of how it started, and I'm curious to hear Dan's <laughs> account of this, I was a fellow at Notre Dame's Institute of Advanced Study in early 2019, I believe. I was already a tenure-track faculty member at WVU then, and Dan was there on a postdoc. And we had coffee like once or twice. But from that came an invitation for me to edit a cluster for Post 45 Contemporaries, which I did on interpretive difficulty. And we just had a lot of fun, I think, talking with each other through that process and decided to keep talking and think about what we wanted to do next. And we were talking, I know, a lot about pedagogy. I don't think it started as a book right away, but thinking about what we could do that would be useful for the classroom. And that would be both useful for students and also for other people like us, like who are trying to think seriously about pedagogy and lots of different kinds of classrooms. Yeah. Yeah. Part of the motivation for me was certainly the desire to work with Joanna again and feeling like we had a great working rapport and that she's someone who I knew it would be exciting and I'd learn a lot to work on a project with. And then I've been in the classroom, I feel like, and I feel like I'm hardly alone in this, have long been trying to figure out the best way to teach close reading and repeatedly find that I'm not as good as it, at it as I want to be, or that my students find me lacking clarity. And when I talk to colleagues at my institution and other institutions, I have found this problem to be widespread. And just as Jenna was talking now, I was thinking about how I was tweeting about it. And my tweets were getting a lot of responses. And this was at the same time that she had, she and I were talking about doing something together. And we were both involved in tweeting about close reading. And people were like, there was a thirst. There was an evident thirst <laughs> on Twitter for some clarity here. And so that's how it started. And the deeper we get into it, the more I just like am getting more and more obsessed with questions that I think are going to make this book, it's going to be like at its core for undergraduates, but I also think it's going to be like extremely useful for graduate students and faculty because I think we all lack clarity around this term that is very difficult to define and that is capacious and includes a number of different kinds of practices that remain ubiquitous, but are far too often identified with new criticism, even though they now have adopted genealogies from a, a range of traditions, which is something I hope we get a chance to talk about because it, it, it also directly connects to some of the conversations you had, Matt, in the previous yeah. season on this topic. 
Yeah, no, I appreciate that prompt. And let's just go there now. And I want to get back to the pedagogy piece that Joanna brought up as well. But I, I utterly agree with you that I think the conventional wisdom, and I know both of you have a tendency to try to test these kinds of conventions, but the conventional wisdom is that this is one of the things that binds literary studies together, right? That given the vast diversity of the types of institutions we all teach at and the kinds of expectations we put upon English majors or literary studies majors, one thing that I think we expect is that all of them will get some sort of deep instruction on close reading. I, I'm curious to know whether you think that's true or not, but then also what that close reading means. As you mentioned, right, I have had the tendency to think that there is a kind of uh, sordid conservative history to the term close reading, if not the practice, and have replaced it in my own courses with something like textual exegesis, right? Even though that seems like a kind of more off-putting term, there's so much baggage associated with close reading that I didn't really want to take that on, even though as a department, <laughs> we have close reading written into our outcomes for 1000 level English courses. So I'm doing this thing. I'm definitely expected to do this thing in my 1000 level classes, but I don't like to call it the thing that we call it in our departmental documentation, right? So I'm definitely suffering from some of these same lack of clarity that Dan mentioned. And so mm -hmm. I'm curious how you're approaching the conventional narrative of close reading and its history and its practice and what you would like us to know maybe about an alternative vision. Yeah, I want to say two things. First, is I think in the teaching archive, Rachel Burma and Laura Heffernan did a really important job of, in a way, decentering close reading and showing how many other forms of pedagogy have been the case historically. If you look descriptively at how classrooms have functioned in terms of looking at potentially collective research projects, that which is really what more of what Aya Richards was doing in the classroom than close reading, even though he's considered the founder of close reading, that wasn't what his classroom necessarily looked like. And so we want to make sure that we understand that there are alternatives to close reading, even as close reading remains a core practice. Then what I'm interested in is looking descriptively at how in everyday the practice of the discipline by going through journal issues and reading how scholars do the work as researchers, there's close reading everywhere there, and it's completely detached from, in my opinion, almost completely detached in practice from the baggage of new criticism. I think we lean too much on new criticism. There's a sort of Anglophone bias, and that we forget things like the Im immense influence that deconstruction had, and with it, a kind of close reading that came out of the French tradition of, I'm not going to try to say the French because I don't speak it, but the explication of text through the French tradition that became part of the American Academy. And I think as influential, one of the things that has been really fun for me to dig into for this book has been the tradition of close reading and historicism and the genealogy of that and, where, and how three major traditions of historicism that are incredibly influential in the U.S. Academy, Edward Said's version of post-colonialism, New Historicism via Greenblatt and Gallagher and etc. and Frederick Jameson all have strong inheritances from Eric Auerbach. Mm -hmm. And through Eric Auerbach, 
to a German tradition of philology, going back to Wilhelm Dilthey, and specifically through Auerbach, back to Vico, and that is grounding a sort of way that you get from the textual evidence to history, and that close reading op- offers a, a portal to get from form to history that is everywhere in our discipline and doesn't have to do with the new critics. And so this is part of the story that we're telling both as a history and as a form of how close reading is practiced today in the book. Yeah, I'll pick up on a few different things here. I just made a very brief list. So first, I want to just say that like part of the attraction for this project for me was getting to work with Dan and that it felt really amazing to realize that like he was a collaborator with whom I shared so many intuitions and commitments, but also came to the, the what we studied in such different ways. Like our backgrounds are really different. Our fields of expertise are really different. Our training is really different. And it's been extremely complimentary for this project, but also like really fun and educational for me. And I don't think I'd ever co-written anything before we started. And it was just great being like, oh, Dan can do this part that I'm not going to be good at or not very interested in or anxious about. And I can do this part that I'm like really excited about. So that's just been like a real joy of this. When we started talking about close reading, one of the things that I was thinking a lot about is that a lot of us teach close reading as if it's a family recipe. Like we teach it the way we learned it. We teach it the way we watched people do it and we imitate it. And maybe we like do our own spin on our old professor's versions of things. Or maybe we even are like, oh, I don't like that piece. I'm going to do it differently. And I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. I don't think we're bad at it. When we were starting this project, one of the things that I had already, I think, begun doing was collecting handouts because uh, everyone has a close reading handout. And in many cases, they're using a version of their old professor's close reading handout. And it was really fascinating to get to see essentially all these family recipes written down on scratch paper, you know, like our our professional version of that, you know, here's how this person teaches close reading. Here's how that person teaches close reading. One of the things I had also, I think, begun doing at that point was in my graduate seminars, asking them to create those kinds of handouts. So I was already trying to think about that genre. But then one of the questions for me is always, isn't this not silly, but like, why am I circulating handouts with other people via email about what their professor once used that they've ripped off? Is there a way to be a little bit more systematic here as an option without necessarily feeling like we're being prescriptive? And I think it makes it feel a little bit bit of a hidden curriculum type thing, where it's like... You know, you got to know someone to get those handouts from. And there's not a lot of transparency about either the anatomy of close reading, what exactly we mean by it, or how it should be evaluated. And these things circulate in these back channels informally. Mm-hmm. And it, it was one of those situations in which it felt like some better vocabulary could be really helpful. So that the, one of the origins of the project is just collecting a bunch of handouts, like writing handouts and collecting handouts and asking students to write handouts and thinking about the most practical version of what is happening in the classroom. We were thinking about really trying to be as clear as possible about what is happening in the classroom. One of the things I also wanted to mention is that I think part of the confusion with the term close reading is that it is used to mean two slightly different things. And one is about the process itself of reading and paying attention to lots of stuff while you read, reading closely, reading slowly, reading attentively, reading critically, right? And then the other is a close reading, the noun, as opposed to the activity. Mm -hmm. And a close reading is an essay or a component of an essay. Mm -hmm. 
And using the same term for both of those things creates a slippage that suggests that it's natural to move from reading into having a sort of written account in essay form and elides actually like what is happening between those two stages because they're two different things yeah and that a lot of the handouts that we collected were about things to notice in a text like how to read attentively and we really actually decided that we were more interested in how to take the leap from reading attentively into producing writing And so when we talk about close reading, we are talking about a close reading. Like, how do you do a close reading, whether it's a paragraph Mm -hmm. or a seven page essay or a chunk of a section that gets incorporated into a dissertation chapter? And we really wanted to write the book that like we wanted for our classrooms and also that like we wanted for ourselves and that we wanted for conversations that are with colleagues beyond our own institutions. Mm -hmm. So we really tried to write that book. And the last thing I want to talk about is the question of whether we really do this in our classroom. And and here I think I can tie in a little bit to stuff that's been happening at WVU, which is that teaching close reading is really resource intensive. And that one of my experiences of coming from private institutions to a public institution in which my courses are much bigger and I don't have TAs is both that it was harder to teach close reading to students because I didn't have the luxury of um, 12 students in the classroom. And also that it was such an important skill for them to learn, partly because so much of the rest of the discipline is built on it. If it doesn't happen in in the 100 or 1000 level courses, like they're going to struggle later on. But that also, It was in many cases the first time, or at least I had the sense that it was the first time for a lot of my students, that anyone asked them what they thought. That I never give a prompt in my classes, not even in my introductory courses, and instead double down on the idea that close reading will help them generate their arguments without me already scaffolding those for them. If I can teach them how to do this skill, then they'll produce things that I wouldn't have thought of to ask. And that is, I find, at least for a lot of my students, really hard. And also they really like it. And that is reliably what they tell me at the end of the semester is that they did not think they could do that. And then they ended up really liking being able to follow their own intuitions and curiosity and learn how to make arguments that support what they cared about and what they noticed and what they were thinking about. But that that does feel actually like exactly what's under threat too. That's a very interesting observation. And I I would concur that at least at the institution where I'm currently teaching, that is an experience I reliably have semester to semester is that when we start close reading as a class, it is met with an enormous amount of discomfort and resistance, right? It is not something they feel natural doing. It is not something they necessarily want to do. They are a little bit suspicious of the rationales behind it. Are you creating something out of nothing? But at the end of the term, it's inevitably something that they comment upon as one of their favorite parts of the class, right? Like digging deep into a scene or a passage, doing that particularly collectively, which comes back to something that Dan was saying earlier. Part of that, I agree, 
unspoken shift from close reading as verb to close reading as noun is from a collective practice to an individual position that when we're doing close reading in the classroom, it is oftentimes something that is done as a group that we're building something together without necessarily even a finished product in mind, right? Just observations bouncing off one another, moving towards an interpretation, but probably never necessarily arriving at one. Whereas the performance of a close reading has a position in mind, has a claim, has some sort of argument. And I agree, we don't necessarily talk about how to get from one to the other very clearly. And maybe they aren't necessarily inherently aligned, even those two parts of close reading. So I, I really appreciate that idea. I wanted to come back, though, to the other thing that Joe Anna raised, which was this question of how close reading affects people, students differently, depending on institution. I love the metaphor of the family recipe, right? And I think that there is definitely a distinction between how I taught close reading as a graduate instructor at University of California, Irvine, how I taught it early in my career at University of Alabama, like you said, much larger classes, and now at a small private college, my pedagogical practice has changed pretty radically over that time for a wide variety of reasons, but one has to do with the makeup of the student body. And we have all taught at multiple institutions in a wide variety of settings. And I would guess that that distinction between how close reading hits students based upon where they are is pretty significant. Yet, we all, and I, by that I mean the broader professoriate as well, come from a relatively homogenized background. 25 to 50, 75 schools are producing the vast majority of the professoriate who are teaching then at thousands of institutions. And I guess one of the questions I would ask is, how do you deal with that question of how close reading differs when you're teaching it at a private college, an R1 university, a community college, there is this illusion of homogeneity in this practice. But my personal experience of it is that it is quite different depending on where you are doing it. One thing we did is we very carefully decided who to invite to be contributors to this by thinking about the diversity of the kind of institution. Mm -hmm that they are at. So we've got people from big state schools. We've got people from small liberal arts colleges. We've got people from elite R1s, whatever. We've got a, a range. And we wanted people to bring their experiences to their writing from where they sit as teachers. I'll say a few things. Yes, obviously, close reading hits different at different places. And I've taught as a graduate student at the University of Chicago. And I was a VAP at a small Jesuit liberal arts college, and now I'm at WVU. But I'm also going to push back a little bit on that, because I actually think close reading is really hard for everyone at every level of whatever background. And that undergraduates at the University of Chicago were scared of taking the step that we call noticing, because they were worried about being wrong, I think, 
And my undergraduates at WVU, I think, are worried about being wrong too, or noticing um, is a sort of a vulnerable thing to ask someone to do. What do you notice in this text? That is a scary question for everyone. So I think that in the same way that writing is hard for everyone, close reading is hard for everyone. And I don't want to elide that or erase that or fail to honor what we're asking undergraduates at every level to do, which is hard. And then the other thing I'll say is just that the ways that it maybe hits a little different, which I think are actually like more minor, the amount of time you have to grade an essay, the number of students in a classroom, like there's all these kinds of like really practical and logistical differences, of course. But it's one of the ways in which I try to tell my undergraduates that they should be more entitled, <laughs> is that they deserve the kind of education that students at elite universities get. Mm. And that this is one of the ways that I signal this to them is that I'll actually say, hey, I went to Stanford and the University of Chicago, and this is what my classrooms were like when I was your age. Let's do that. You deserve that. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's hard for me to do with a classroom of 25 or 28 or 32 students, but I do try. Yeah. And then I feel like part of what I'm teaching them when I teach them close reading is how to analyze the text and how to make a claim and all of that. Mm -hmm. But a lot of it is also that they get to. Yeah. That idea that close reading or the tools that we train in order to perform to close reading are kind of code breaking, right? I like the idea of we are enabling them, entitling them to the idea of seeing the organization of power uh, within a cultural product. And that once they start doing that, their ability to see the world and how it is organized in ways that are perhaps more politically nuanced is going to be accelerated. Right? They can see the world in ways that are more politically nuanced. The classroom itself immediately becomes more democratic. Yeah. For example, right? Because I'm not keeping things in my back pocket that I'm pulling out one at a time to show them. Right. Um, there is something liberatory about close reading is practiced in that method. The other thing I just wanted to mention is when we were talking about moving from reading to doing a reading and how they're aligned, like that's something that Dan and I thought a lot about. And one of the things we did in this book that is part of what happens in the introduction to it is we outlined five steps that we see in close readings. And he and I read a whole bunch of close readings and talked a lot about this. And the second one we call noticing. And that is really the link between what you're doing when you're reading, when you're in front of a book or a screen or whatever, attending to it. But then that also is this really crucial step in what happens when you write, which is that you point to something and you say, look at this detail. Yeah. One of the ways in which Dan's recent book, Big, Fic Big Fiction, has been received has to do with a discomfort around a broader definition of what close reading is, what sort of interpretive acts are. To me, at least, somewhat surprising that not only has the book gotten a lot of academic reception, which I fully expected, but that it has gotten a, a great deal of mainstream sort of legacy media reception. And one of the things I see particularly in some of those reviews in places like The Atlantic is a discomfort with the idea 
of a kind of historicist close reading, the, the distinction you made earlier, Dan, between a kind of historicist close reading compared to an ahistoricist new critical style close reading. And that when you make the jump to interpret the agency of a corporation through a text, say, Daniel Steele's The Promise, what you call conglomerate authorship, which is coming out of this tradition of sort of corporate allegory, corporate authorship that has existed for a while in literary studies, media studies, cultural studies. There is a, a, a kind of resistance to that, not necessarily from academic critics or scholars, although I think there is in some cases there too, but a much more egregious one from practicing journalistic critics. And I wanted to ask how would you would respond to that kind of discomfort with your method that I have seen expressed in a few different reviews? Yeah, thanks, Matt. I've been like astonished by the reception, first of all, just that, that it's gotten this mainstream attention has been amazing. I'm thrilled, but it's also what the hell is happening in my life right now. But yeah, and then I read them and, and overall I've, I've felt really large part grateful. But one of the things that has jumped out is exactly this resistance where there are these moments in my text that people come to. And one that it repeats over and over again is my reading Toni Morrison's Beloved, where people, readers resist it in a way that seems to me strikingly literal minded or strikingly conservative in a desire to hang on to a status quo or a common sense so what I call conglomerate authorship is a concept that I built having inherited a variety of traditions. So I'm borrowing from scholars in TV and film, Michael Soleil, who's part of this season um, with his great recent book, Second Lives, J.D. Connor in film studies, Jerome Christensen, among others, as well as folks working in the tradition of sociology of literary studies like Mark McGurl and Sarah Brulette. Jim English and work that Lisa Saraganian has done on corporations and authorship in a recent book too. So there's a lot of work that I'm standing on the shoulders of with this idea of conglomerate authorship. And the way that I'm thinking about it here is really attempting yet again in this battle that has gone on for centuries to try to undo the the mythology of the author and the solitary romantic author and try to situate that author back in the milieu um, from which they're working. So there's also the soci sociologist Howard Becker from the United States, who's this really, he recently died, really important sociologist of art, who didn't pay a lot of attention to literature, but his work really got, was forcing people to think about the how collectives are responsible for art along a lot of different media and genres. And Putting the author in the context of the industry is what I'm doing in the conglomerate era and what I'm doing with the concept of conglomerate authorship. And under conglomeration, that means the author is working in a context of the literary agent and the editor and the marketer and the publicist and so on and so forth. And these are all the kind of figures and how that interaction works and how cognition works and how all that works is, is stuff plays out in the book. So then when that comes around to coming up with a close reading and an interpretation of Daniel Steele or Toni Morrison, then I'm, I'm making an argument about how, say, Toni Morrison's beloved, one of the things it's doing is it's allegorizing her relationship to the publishing industry. And this is one that people have particularly singled out for resistance. So in the case of beloved, I feel like the textual evidence is quite strong on my behalf. So there's 
a forward to Beloved where Morrison walks through her experience of coming to the idea of writing this book and how it comes directly out of her having quit the publishing industry where she had worked for 16 years. And I talk about what that experience was like for her and the work she did there and the difficulty of being a black woman in that context and also her resistance to conglomeration. And she was extremely vocal about what conglomeration did to editing through the profit motive. So there's like this deep sense in which Morrison has been really invested and really involved for well more than a decade of her life in the business of making literature at Random House, the heart of the publishing industry. She leaves, she goes, she has this sense of freedom sitting over the Hudson River that she writes about. And she's like, "This is I have this unsettling feeling in my body. What is this? And it's this sense of freedom that I'm not in that space anymore. I'm not in that office. I'm not in that industry anymore. And then she says, Enter Beloved, a book about freedom, right? And so there's a kind of perversity here. There's a book about slavery. And to, to make the comparison from slavery to the publishing industry, I think is one that is scandalous. And I think there's a resistance to that. But it's also a comparison that she sets out explicitly right. in that forward. And when she talks about that feeling in her body, she is echoing exactly the language that she gives to baby Suggs in Beloved when baby Suggs goes north and says, what is this unsettling feeling I have? Oh, it's the feeling of my heart. It's my heart. This is Morrison's intentionally echoing that language in her own story of the genesis of this novel in her quitting of the publishing industry. So I make this argument with this evidence, reading then this novel informed by this collective conglomerate experience that she has. And when people push back on it, I say, what is it that they are resisting? Why this case in particular? I think there is the scandal of comparing the publishing industry to slavery. I think maybe even more based on how people have been writing about this is the scandal of taking maybe the most mythologized and romanticized author in American literature and saying that she too, like anyone else, is a worker in the context of an industry mm -hmm. rather than an icon, rather than a genius. And that this is a place where a sort of conservative impulse rears its head. Oh no, this way of thinking about the influence of the corporation on the business of publishing must be far-fetched. This is clumsy. This can't be right. Because there is this deep impulse to want to keep a certain vision of authorship in Toni Morrison above anyone else. Yeah. I would agree. And I'm glad you gave us a, a version of your reading of Beloved because I would agree that in the reviews I have read, that is almost always of the many authors and publishing houses and situations that you talk about in your book, that is almost always the one that people pick out to criticize. And I think you're absolutely right. That has to do a lot with Toni Morrison's cultural cachet, her cultural capital, perhaps even with a difficulty amongst those who had not thought of her career prior to becoming a novelist with reconceiving of their notion of who she was. And what I think is interesting then, and the, the sort of transitional question I want to make is they don't choose Danielle Steele. <laughs> In many ways, Danielle Steele, far more than Morrison, is the kind of epitome of the conglomerate author as you lay out 
And, and, and just so that listeners know, Joanna and I have both read The Promise, which is Steele's breakout novel, novelization of a terrible film that was a, a huge bestseller in the late 1970s. We've all read that and we're going to talk about it. We've also read some other Steele, including some of the more recent ones. And so yes. <laughs> yeah, we're going to transition here to talking about Danielle Steele as an author and also a phenomena and also as part of this idea of conglomerate authorship. But I, I wanted to start with why is Danielle Steele the kind of epitome of this conglomeration process that is happening during the late 20th and into the 21st century? The pairing of Daniel Steele and Toni Morrison is really like perfect because Toni Morrison, there's there's few authors that have, have as many entries in MLA bibliography as Toni Morrison. She has more than 3,000. Daniel Steele has six. <laughs> like six. And Daniel Steele has sold like one billion books. That's an outrageous number of books. Sales are weird, but she's potentially one of the five best-selling novelists of all time or something like that. And for how I'm thinking about big fiction, she is an iconic figure for the consequences of the 1970s intensification of conglomeration and how it has built the world of books that we live in to 2023. And the fact that she continues to be a top best-selling author in 2023 is a sign that the world that we've inherited starting with The Promise in 1978 remains the world we live in today. I make an argument in the book that contemporary literature starts around 1980. And I won't get into the whole scheme of things. There's a whole story to tell about why the 1970s was this massively transitional decade that Daniel Steele becomes is kind of created in 1978 with The Promise as a solution to profit problems at conglomerate publishers by putting a ton of marketing muscle behind her so much that she becomes the household name that I've always known her to be. She becomes a guarantee for profit book by book. But for her, becoming that household name, becoming that brand is also a crisis for her personally because she must then, in a way that Toni Morrison never has to, make explicit Daniel Steele has to make explicit her own artistry, her own, the fact that she's doing it, that this is not a factory. And she does this all the time. She has a blog that she wrote for years where she regularly talks about all of the hard work she's doing. In one of the novels, we're going to talk a lot about happiness, which is partly autofiction. Her writer figure, who is like her, talks about how hard she writes all the time and how she's constantly across her career insisting that she is the author of these books and not like this mechanistic factory product that it is easy to think that she is. Morrison doesn't have to do that because she sits at this other pool of prestige. She doesn't have to make those claims. If you suggest that Morrison is a, is a product of an industry, people will try to chop your head off. If you suggest that to Daniel Steele, they'll roll their eyes and say, obviously. So Daniel Steele's over here being like, fuck you, I wrote my books. <laughs> And just, I think for listeners who haven't read your book or the wonderful essay on Daniel Steele that you published last year in LA Review of Books, which everybody should definitely go read. If they want to be convinced why they should pick up Dan's book, start with that essay would be my recommendation. But just one little piece of that, the reason, one of the reasons why this assumption about Steele arises is her just 
insane productivity, right? Hundreds of novels now. Yeah. So she's got, I mean, it's dangerous for me to get started on Daniel Steele because I really could talk until it's 3 p.m. now and I could go until dark, until past our bedtimes. But she has just lived this extraordinary life and it's been wild twists and turns. But maybe pieces of that biography might come become useful to us at some point in this conversation. But she wrote her first novel and published it in 1973. And she wrote a couple more before The Promise. The Promise was her fourth novel in 1978. That's when she got super famous. She wrote a book or two a year until about 1993, she wrote one or two per year. And then from 1997 through 2014, it was three a year, every year from 1997 to 2014. And then she started upping until in 2016 through 2020, it was six or seven a year. And now she's on a very sh- calculated seven per year from 2021 <laughs> through the present. And so this, these numbers are like unsettling because she insists that she's the one writing every single one of these. And you start to wonder if you're writing, I don't know, she's 70, in her mid to late 70s now, and she's writing seven books a year, she says. And this starts to, I, I, it raises some questions about what's going on. And there's a number of possible ways to think about what's happening. One way to think about what's happening is industrial. And that's that there was this law for bestsellers or this sort of publishing operates through consensus. Everyone gets an idea of what they think works and what doesn't work. And there was this kind of consensus sense that the brand names have a sort of demand cap and that only you can only sell a certain amount before the brand starts to dissipate. And James Patterson shattered that consensus view. And so post James Patterson, it became clear that brands could exceed and that and and produce wealth. And so if you're Daniel Steele, like there's going to be a lot of pressure from Delacorte, which is part of Ran- Penguin Random House, which is her press, that like she can maximize revenue by increasing her productivity after the James Patterson explosion of the demand cap myth. And so that's one thing that's going on. And the quant- consequences, I think, have been tragic for her aesthetic. <laughs> aesthetics. <laughs> yeah, so let, I, I definitely want us to get into the promise and then maybe from there into the the potential aesthetic changes that we see between her first real success and these more recent novels that we have dipped into. And one of the things that you say in your reading of The Promise is that this is the sort of first time that she exposes that angst that you identify that's all over her work. And and based on what little of it I have now read, I, I would agree that she is trying to prove that this is her voice, her perspective, her distinct style. And so let's start with that. What is happening in The Promise that Danielle Steele is trying to become Danielle Steele as an artist, not just as a brand. 
This The Promise is an incredible book. It is absolutely bizarre. And one of the things that's t- tragic about Daniel Seale's later career is the weirdness of the early work has been lost. And so The Promise is this book that was given to her as a screenplay that was a ripoff, a total ripoff of Love Story. And Love Story was this massive hit in the 70s. It was a book, but before it was a book, it was a screenplay also. And so this idea of novelizing screenplays became popular. And so it's a about this like star-crossed romance between an elite Harvard architecture PhD (laughs) and this orphan girl who's an artist. And the mother of the PhD, he comes from this extraordinarily wealthy family. And his mother says, this is a forbidden romance. You cannot have this cross-class romance. And so the couple, the wealthy PhD, the poor artist, run off to elope, but on their way, they get in a horrific car crash. And after the car crash, the man ends up in a coma, and the woman ends up losing her face. The descriptions are like, she has no face anymore. Her face is gone. All that is left are her eyeballs. Otherwise, the rest of her is relatively intact. But she has no face. So the, so the deal that is made is that a young man's mother, who forbid this romance, goes to the woman and he, she says, there's one plastic surgeon who can make you more beautiful than you were before, but he's in San Francisco and I will pay for you hundreds of thousands of dollars to get you a more beautiful face than you had before on the grounds that you never contact my son again. And then when the son wakes up from the coma, the mother says, oh, your fiance, she died. She's dead. And so then the rest of this novel is, are these two ever going to be able to find each other again? And much of the novel takes place in San Francisco, which the car crash happens on the East Coast. And the young woman is sent off to San Francisco to be with this plastic surgeon who ends up falling in love with her. But he also is remaking her to be um, someone special. And there's all this emphasis about the role that he's playing and ushering her into the world, specifically as an artist. Like, he's going to create her and launch her. And The Promise is the book in which a male editor is recreating and launching Daniel Steele. So to me, there is a clear allegorical reading to be had where this plastic surgeon is giving a new face to this young artist and launching her career. Sounds quite a lot like what is happening between Bill Gross, Ed Dell, and Daniel Steele with The Promise, then the problem allegorically is for Daniel Steele to say, if this man who is launching me into the world is going to be the one creating my face, where is my agency in this situation? And so the finding of the romance, the recognition of Michael who ultimately finds her to see that despite the face, she is still who she always was. She's authentically her and her artistic vision is the same. So whereas there's this question then of if this man is is giving her a new face, and launching her as an artist, where's her agency here? And Daniel Steele needs to infuse this allegory with her own agency, and that agency is found in the conclusion of the romance where the young man ultimately does find her. And in what he sees is despite the fact that she's been launched with this new face, she's still her. And her art is, is still contains the same vision that she had in the girl that he knew originally. And so there's this kind of authenticity, this continuity of self that 
exists through this launching of the new face that the editor avatar gives her. And so that's my reading of The Promise as this sort of moment of launching her career in which she's also insisting on her own agency as an artist through that. I I have several things that I want to follow up here, but I want first I, I want to ask Joanna to give us her response to this novel. Oh man! Okay, so I read the promise first, and I read it when we first started talking about this. So it was a few months out for me now. I read Happiness more recently, and that's what Dan and I talked about yesterday mm-hmm. more. And in some ways, like Happiness was like more surprising to me because it was. And its aggressive non-weirdness was much weirder. Mm-hmm. Like the promise was certainly strange, but was a novel in ways that I recognized. Whereas happiness was like, I don't know what this is anymore. <laughs> the late Danielle Steele. So I don't know if we want to talk about that too, but. For sure. Yeah. I just want to offer up and I hope we get back to talking about the promise in a little bit more detail, because I have several questions. But I want to offer up the possibility that what Danielle Steele is doing for herself is also being done for the novel itself, right? (laughs) That this started as a film script. And reading the novel, all I could see over and over again is how bad it would be as cinema, right? That that a huge portion of the book is basically somebody having their face reconstructed and the kind of inner turmoil that is created by that sort of shifting identity and the way she is being remade both of her own choosing and out of forces of the marketplace. And that seemed to me about the novel reclaiming its space over film and cinema in the mid-century, right? That this book is way more successful than the film is. And all the reviews of the film are about how badly written it is, whereas the novel is quite punchy. Right, quite lucid, right? The Dan- Danielle Steele, for whatever stylistic problems she might present, she can write a freaking sentence. Not in happiness, though. Yeah. Well, that, and so, yeah, that's one of the things I want to get to. But yeah, I think that this is Danielle Steele trying to reassert not only her own artistic legitimacy, but the kind of preeminence of the novel as a popular form. I think that's great, Matt. And that reading is aligned perfectly with this great book that I got to read in manuscript that's coming out next year from Evan Breyer called Novel Competition. It's coming out with the University of Iowa Press, and I really recommend it. And it's about exactly this, how the novel responded in these years, these post-war years, post-1965, to competition from TV, film, other media And I think that's right. And I think part of what you're seeing there, too, is how the early Danielle Steele was closer to middlebrow in the sense that she's writing in a lowbrow genre with ambitions for a sort of bookishness or a sort of artistry that, you know, is most evident for me of her early works in this incredible second novel, which I was revisiting this morning. I just need to speak about very briefly called Passion's Promise, because where her later work becomes really politically conservative and all about defending rich people and wealth, her early work in her second novel, the hero, the male hero of the book is a prison abolitionist 
who is killed by the cops. Or it's not explicit, but it, like it's basically implied that he's killed by the cops. He's trailed by the cops of the bad guys. And this prison abolitionist is the hero who the heroine falls in love with. But there's also this line from Passion's Promise, her second novel, where she says, she was home again. I'm quoting here. She was home again, another home. This is downtown lower Manhattan. Warehouses and tired tenements, fire escapes and delicatessens, and a few blocks away, the art galleries and coffee houses and lofts crowded with artists and writers, sculptors and poets, beards and bandanas, a place where Camus and Sartre were still revered, and de Kooning and Pollock were gods. And these sort of references that she drops in to, like, Russian literature or having a short story anthology in her purse are fairly common in, in the early works and I think are suggesting a sort of ambition that she has for the genre of the novel that I think dissipates over time when her career gets overwhelmed by this competition with her brand. So, uh, yeah, let's talk about then that shift. What did you see in Happiness? And I will admit, I didn't even get very far in Happiness, but I did read almost the entirety of Worthy Opponents, which is also published last year, is also 256 pages long <laughs> and has a lot of plot points that it shares with The Promise. So I have some experience now with Danielle Steele's late style, but you guys seemed a little bit more interested in talking about happiness. And what is it that you see as the kind of stylistic shift that happens from early steel to contemporary steel. Do you want to describe how the stylistic shift, Dan? Have you read much more than I have? Oh, it's incredible. It's astonishing and appalling. Happiness is a book that feels like Danielle Steele GPT. Mm -hmm. It feels like now that she's writing seven books a year, she has to crank them out with such speed that she has become a sort of ersatz version of herself. All the books now seem to be almost exactly the same length. And to do this, they there's a lot of filler. So like a chapter will have an idea and that idea will get recirculated mm -hmm. like over and over again in slightly different formations, kind of like ChatGPT will, will yeah. do things. On the sentence level, sometimes I was trying to tell myself it was like experimental poetry or something because it would be like dan was wearing a red sweater today as he walked out of the door his sweater was the same color red as the fall leaves the sweater's redness like the fall leaves and it'd be like four sentences that were like all said the same thing with like slightly different constructions and there's clearly like an unconscious repetition you know how like we all do this when we're writing quickly you'll unconsciously repeat mm -hmm. a word in another sentence. Yep. There's that that has not been revised out or edited yeah. out. All of that is there. And I think that's really important to understanding what's going on with her project. But I also think the book itself is there's, <laughs> I think Joanna and I have things to say about the plot and like mm -hmm. <laughs> how to do a reading of this book and, Matt, I hope we get to hear your thoughts on Worthy Opponents, which I will confess, the mail canceled my order. I had pre-ordered it, and then I was kept on waiting for it. And I got an email not long ago saying that we're, like it wasn't going to come to me. And I have, I've, you know, you've reached I've, your quota. So many, I've, yeah, they're like, you can't have no any more Daniel Steele. Like, no this more is, you know, I'm sitting here showing them my one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten Daniel Steele books that I have, which you know is only still like a small sliver. Right? Of yeah, that's like ten percent. Um, <laughs> but uh, the ten that I've read. 
so I, I will want to hear your version of it. But happiness, like we'll just do a quick rundown of happiness here. So it's a book about a writer, Sabrina Brooks who is a writer and is often the case in Daniel Steele's works. She has a complicated relationship to her parents, like Daniel Steele did herself. Daniel Steele grew up in Manhattan, in Midtown Manhattan, with a father who was distant and a mother who was absent. Her parents divorced when she was eight and her mother left. In this novel, Happiness, her mother abandons her when she's six. And she and her mother has no part in her life. And in this book, her father in in, in happiness is a writer and an academic. It happens a uh, lot in Daniel Steele's work as well. It would it would seem right. And there's a turn where in the early work, the hero is this Harvard PhD architecture student, and there's this sort of admiration for art and prestige, and that is, seems to have soured. Um, and there seems to be a sort of negative affect that turns towards academia in in mm-hmm. in the later work. And so the father is this kind of emotionally distant, unpleasant person. He's an English and history professor in the novel who writes a lot of biographies. And one of the narrative lines is around family secrets, because she has this family history that she doesn't know about or she learns about through the book. Sabrina herself graduates from UCLA. She works at as a screenwriter for Disney and Lucas Studios before she writes a psychological thriller based on her abusive second marriage and that becomes a best-selling novelist. When the novel really picks up speed, she's 48 years old, single and childless, and immensely wealthy because she's an immensely best-selling novelist, and she inherits a family estate that she had no idea was part of her family history in England. And she has to decide whether or not she's going to keep the estate or sell the estate. And while trying to figure this out, the executor of the estate, a man named Gray, becomes her love interest. And he is in an unhappy marriage. And there are two questions. Will Gray divorce his wife to be with Sabrina? And will Sabrina decide to keep the estate? And these are the two (laughs) questions that are meant to motivate the plots in the novel, and it's called happiness because the novel repeats over and over to us that happiness is a choice and a gift. And in the end, the novel concludes that Sabrina and Gray had the courage to choose happiness by choosing to be together and to keep the estate. (laughs) It's a sort of horrifying celebration of the wealthiest in the world and adorning them with the affects of courage. Johanna, do you want to take it from here? Yeah, I mean, it's honestly astonishing how it's not a page turner. (laughs) I was never worried about anyone in this book. And yesterday I told Dan that in the very beginning of the book, it starts off by seeming like maybe it's going to be a buildings roman, maybe it's going to be a kunstler roman. Maybe it's even going to have these, she has this abusive husband at one point, like maybe it's going to have this like, the psychological horror plot that her own books end up having. And instead, the big drama is like, where would be the best place to write? Would it be this desk at this manor house in England? Or would it be her remodeled barn in the Berkshires? Uh But that's actually all she's really interested in doing is writing and hanging out with her like dogs. And yeah, I was reading it thinking, is Sabrina Brooks? Is this a reference to Dorothea? Is this about the novel about the marriage plot, but it's just not very convincing by late Daniel Steele that those things are at least prominent in her mind. But what she is doing all the time, what Sabrina is doing all the time is writing and is constantly attentive 
to her deadlines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the celebration of workaholism mm-hmm. seems to be pretty consistent, at least in the steel that I have now read. <laughs> yeah, and I think one of the things she's doing in this book is trying to work out how she has submitted herself wholly to the profit engine that is her brand. Like, when she talks about her own work ethic, like, it is insane the degrees to which she, like, is constantly working. She writes about sleeping four hours a night. She writes about how she's got, like, assistants who basically facilitate every other aspect of her life so that she can be writing all the time. And this is one of her, like, last blog entries before she stopped writing blog entries to just fully devote herself to Instagram when she's not writing her novels earlier this year. This is from February of of 2023. She says, I've been working on four different books, editing, outlining, writing first and last drafts with a fifth one in my head that I will outline soon. It's a major juggling act and I have done nothing but write for the last month or so with another month of it up ahead. And then I plan to take a couple weeks off before I start another book. The only time I'm good about taking off is to spend time with my children. And I'm still playing catch up after the two months I took off at the end of the year to visit them. But it was well worth it. She does have this thing where family is the one thing other than writing in her life. But even when she's visiting family, she says she's writing late at night or writing during the travel on the plane. And the happiness as a novel becomes this sort of justification of the choice to do nothing but write all the time. She's working through the way in which she has become purely a creature of the conglomerate industry, I think. Stop me if you've heard this before. Actually, don't, because you're going to have heard all this before. Worthy Opponents is basically the exact same plot, but you substitute the English sort of pastoralism for kind of New York Fashion Week. And so you have Spencer Brooks is the main character, the main female leads, who is the inheritor of the Brooks and Sons department store. And she is trying to balance work and her love of this uh, job as CEO of the department store with her twin sons from a bad marriage uh, that has ended in divorce and a budding romance with the venture capitalist who is trying to invest in her store, but she doesn't want to because she doesn't want it to be to leave the family. She has a very awkward relationship with her mother and father, both of whom died relatively young compared to her grandfather, who is the real father figure in the story and whose legacy she's trying to live up to. And her grandfather and grandmother give the story the the title because their version of marriage is as worthy opponents, right? So we have have this idea of the sort of competitive aspect of marriage and then Mike the venture capitalist and Spencer the department store executive they meet on the field of capitalist battle but grow to see the honor in, in each other and then to fall in love and the version of deciding to keep the English estate is deciding that oh maybe we should open that downtown location maybe Maybe we should take that investment from Mike Weston's firm and grow the business, expand it outside New York City, make it a bigger brand. She comes to realize that especially if she's going to be in love with him, be married to him, then she can accept this growth to her business that has been frightening to her from the start. (laughs) So this idea of making the conflict 
be between becoming wealthier and remaining only very wealthy. <laughs> it seems to be repeating in Steele's. And the decision is to become wealthier. Yeah. <laughs> and then that's done in a way that ha- that centrally is also about the heroine's courage, yeah. courage and her dis- and 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 her choice, like her making a courageous decision to do that. Yes. And so there's this sort of moral rehabilitation of the very wealthiest mm-hmm. that is also a defense of her own decision to write seven books a year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, At the, with the potential family consequences. And that is definitely something that shows up all over worthy opponents, usually though displaced to the Mike Weston figure, who is a very honorable, likable guy, despite being this billionaire venture capitalist. His one flaw is he didn't spend enough time with his kids. And he has this bitter wife who he has to get divorced from in the middle of the novel, who is you know, constantly complaining about how the, he doesn't give them enough attention. Uh, and he feels regretful. He has a lot of guilt about that and believes some of her criticisms are right, but that he has changed. He has become a bigger person and he needs that opportunity to prove that he's become somebody different. And he finds it, of course, by falling in love with Spencer Brooks. There's so much in these that are also working through demands of the genre. Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking a lot about Janice Radway and some more recent essays by and work by Eva Luz and Gloria Fisk and Sarah Boulette while going back through Danielle Steele and thinking, you know, about the fact that these novels, that she's sold one billion Mm -hmm. (laughs) of these novels. She's one of the most popular writers in the world. And these books continue to sell in vast amounts Mm -hmm. um, and are like performing a service. What Janice Radway argues that service is that it is allowing people to meet their needs in the fantasy life that are not being met by heterosexuality. And that one of the ways that this has changed over the years is that it has been increasingly part of the genre. This is Sarah Brulette's argument. There's this increasing importance for women to be able to have a sense of agency and choice and female empowerment that I think we're seeing play out in the very notion happiness is a choice that the protagonist must make in deciding whether or not to stay in England and be with this guy that she's attracted to. But the fact that happiness is a choice, and this is the epigraph to happiness, happiness is a choice, comma, and a gift, is actually puts together this contradictory tension that is a tension at the heart of romance as a genre, and also arguably about the ideals of contemporary femininity or womanhood, the idea that you're meant to have everything, whatever, and you're also meant to be empowered and have choices. But there's also this desirability of not wanting to have to make that choice of being of uh, so like in some versions of this like an overwhelming attraction takes that yeah. choice away but there's an attempt to maintain both of the like the notion that a gift which is something that is not chosen but given and the ch- choice that is empowerment that both of these things are happening at once among other things among the allegories that steals writing for her own career she's also like navigating the demands of the genre Mm-hmm. This you, that, that brings me to a question that I wasn't sure I felt the need to ask, but I do think it's important given some of the claims that you've made about Daniel Steele. Is Daniel Steele, are her books basically sexless? Because this was a surprise to me. Like the beginning of The Promise, there it, it's the, the opening chapter where we get the romance between the two figures who are going to be separated is a little bit horny. 
But then after that, very little actual intercourse or copulation, and there's none in Worthy Opponents. And I was somewhat surprised by that because my assumption has always been, again, as somebody who has not, never read Daniel Steele, that she was on that wall of romance novels that were in the Walden books when I was growing up, and that there was a kind of fluidity or an assumption that the, the line between romance and erotica had been blurred to the point of going away. And so I assumed that these books were going to have some steamy scenes. And I, I was curious what you make of her enormous popularity in the midst of a, a genre explosion that seemed to be side by side with this sort of normalization of erotica in the late 20th century. So, so romance started to grow a lot in the 1970s through Harlequin and Avon, and then it really blew up in the 1980s. It has continued to grow. And, it, and it, at this point, there was a recent essay by J.D. Porter and Jim English, along with several collaborators in public books that came out in the cultural industries section that I edit with Lord McGrath and in a series that Richard Jean So was part of editing too, that talks about how romance has become so big that it is a universe unto itself of microgenres. Mm -hmm. And this already began in the 1970s and 1980s. So there are like very clear subgenres that go, dating back to then of romance that are chaste, mm -hmm. like very important chaste romance genres. And then there's like versions that are much closer to erotica. And now at this point, there's kind of everything in between. Like romance is as big a world unto itself as like all other literature combined mm -hmm. in 2023. Yeah. Romance is just like a, a vastly important and immense with in incredible complexity built into it. But what I will say is that in her first three novels before The Promise, they are much closer to a sort of like Erica Jong, cosmopolitan, women's magazine kind of feminist novel writing with a lot more sex in them. So there's sex in the first chapter of her first novel, Going Home. There's also an orgy that the male love interest brings the heroine to an orgy. And then she decides she doesn't want to take part and they go home and have sex. But Danielle Steele's like, she at one point lived in a commune in the Bay and is really like immersed in the hippie culture and counterculture world of the late 60s and early 70s. Um, and that comes up all over the place, in so including some of the free love stuff that was part of that culture in the early mm -hmm. works. So, but, but when, it's even when she's. intimated in The Promise. When, but the, the promise, what happens with The Promise, this is an argument that I make in the LARB thing piece that I wrote on Steel is that when she becomes the brand with a promise in 78, it makes her, it, it, it creates a sort of, for reasons I don't fully understand, it, it reduces her to a sort of childlike mm -hmm. worldview. And the, the, like, the thing that is like most cringeworthy in the promise to me is the dialogue and the relationship between the two main characters, which is, and it's constantly are referring to each other as children or mm -hmm. responding or acting like five-year-olds. And they talk to each other like they're little kids. And that continues even when she has a book that's full of ridiculous sex, like her incredible sci-fi romance, The Clone and I from the 90s, that is jam-packed with sex. The sex is, if there were such a thing as G-rated sex, it's cartoonish. She's frequently having sex with this robot clone who does like multiple flips in the air while they're having sex. And it's mostly about the kind of flips that they're doing. <laughs> it's like incredible because it's bizarre but it's like there's nothing sexual there's no sexuality in it yeah. 
there's no sexuality in the sex yeah. that's happening post kind of the promise. It seems like in some ways it's how she's framing her conservatism, mm-hmm. even. Right? Like in Happiness, the, the main character is love interest, Gray, who's unhappily married. Like his wife is promiscuous and that there's this like break from that to their, it seems like ha- they had a cuddly overnight at one point partway through the book. But yeah, very little sex. Yeah, It happens off stage. Yeah. Um, so building off of this, one of the, the observations that I was hinting at, and, and I'm not even sure I know enough to, to make, is that as Danielle Steele becomes capitalist apologia, she also has to become chaste romance. And that the, these later books seem to have very little, if any, allusion to the physical act of lovemaking, but they are filled with allusions to Randian individualism and a rational market and the virtues of capitalism. Workaholism. Yeah. And I'm curious, like, who is the audience for that? Right? Like, these books are still- Who's not the audience? Yeah. You better than anyone, Matt, know that, that the country that we live in and the role of economics and the, like that's, Ayn Rand is immensely popular. Right. Like, to this day, like, if you can package Ayn Rand in Daniel Steele's covers, of course those books are going to be yeah. soaked up in this country you live in yeah and and uh, that is what i was gesturing towards is that the, this does feel as though it is there is a propagandistic element to it right but i also would like to think and maybe this is my naivete that the sort of as you called it the supermarket schlock reader of the 21st century is probably a little bit more skeptical about that kind of Randian idealism about the market than a reader in the 1960s and 1970s or the sort of early stages of neoliberalism when Rand's books are becoming massive bestsellers. That seems like a very different audience than the ones who are buying books today. I think she's couching it. These books aren't like The Fountainhead. Like couching all of this in like, good old fashioned work ethic and Mm -hmm. sort of moral integrity. And it's there as subtext. I think if you're reading these books as entertainment and you're mostly just interested in following the plot along, you're interested in these two characters getting together. I don't know how much it... not challenging in certain... Like I was just thinking about how the two houses that Sabrina Brooks has to choose between in... Happiness are the same house, except one's an English farmhouse and one's a you know a manor house, yeah. but and the other is a fancy remodeled barn. Yeah, <laughs> that's still the same thing in that they're fancy versions. They're pastoral, right? Like they're both pastoral fantasies. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, like there's an argument that I think her name is Elizabeth Chamberlain made about Judith Krantz's novels, which were she was a peer of Daniel Steele whose books were among the most popular books of the 1970s, 1980s, when Daniel Steele was maybe still not doing this kind of rich person propaganda yet, Judith Krantz 100% was. And she was butting up with Donald Trump back in the 80s. And Elizabeth Chamberlain was trying to understand this in the Trump era and was arguing that there's a kind of fantasy of reading these where you get to 
virtually inhabit the life of the very rich mm-hmm. for a while yeah. and imagine that these are your problems. Imagine that your problems in, in, in the society that we live in today in 2023, after 50 years of wage stagnation and in a context of inflation, and you're trying to like read something in the limited leisure time that you have, if you get the option to enter a world where the, the problem you have to face is to spend all my time in my beautiful Berkshire remade farmhouse or to decide to spend half the year in my British estate, there's something satisfying, I think, about living in that character's yeah. space that can serve a sort of fantasy in the, against the backdrop of a broken economy. Yeah, the same reason why Real Housewives is popular or <laughs> Succession. That, that inha- mm-hmm. inhabiting the rich people problems is definitely an entertainment we embrace. And I guess the question that I was gesturing towards is like, does the genre of romance in the conglomerate era inevitably default towards some sort of capitalist apology? Is this a Danielle Steele mm-hmm. phenomenon? Or is I it think- part mm-hmm. of the genre in relationship to its mechanisms of production? Yeah, no, I, I think I, romance is way too big and weird, way too weird for that. And one would need to, I would need to go back to Mark McGurl's most recent book on Amazon, where yeah. he, more than anyone else, has really plumbed the depths of the varieties of romance. But I mean, I, I immediately think of someone like Chuck Tingle, who's, do you guys know Chuck Tingle? Mm-mm. Oh, man, <laughs> Chuck Tingle's glorious. Let me just read you, everyone who listens to this podcast should know about Chuck Tingle. Chuck Tingle is an immensely popular pseudonymous author. I'm reading from the Wikipedia here. Primarily niche gay erotica. And let's see, I'm trying to get the origin story. There was a great origin story where, yeah, in 2016, Tingle's novel Space Raptor Butt Invasion was a finalist for the Hugo Award for Best Short Story. This stemmed from a voting campaign by the alt-right Rabid Puppies group a faction of the sad puppies movement that objects to modern social trends in science fiction. However, Tingle disavowed the campaign, saying via his Twitter account that it was the work of devils, and that if his books were win were to win, video game designer and anti-harassment activist Zoe Quinn would accept the award on his behalf. But this nomination made him famous, and his novels, here's a list of some of the names of his novels. Helicopter Man, Helicopter Man Pounds Dinosaur Billionaire Ass. <laughs> My billionaire triceratops craves gay ass. (laughs) Taken by the gay unicorn biker. I'm gay for my living billionaire jet plane. (laughs) My butt is comforted by the realization that I'm okay and everything will be all right. Oppressed in the butt by my inclusive holiday coffee cups. Um, Exception, a butt within a butt. (laughs) Pounded in the butt by my book, pounded in the butt by my own butt. <laughs> and Mark McGurl has a reading of Chuck Tingle in Everything and Less because he has become such a phenomenon. I, I encourage everyone to follow Chuck Tingle on, on on social media. It's hard to like follow Chuck Tingle and not feel that there's a sort of overabundance of energy that is utopian mm-hmm. in the Chuck Tingle erotica project. And so that's just like the first example that comes to mind to me to saying like, it would be impossible to say a single thing about the sort of political valences of romance in 2023. It's just too vastly like heterogeneous. And there's so many fascinating things going on within it from Daniel Steele to Chuck Tingle and everything in between. 
is there some sort of way out of the conglomeration that we have been seeing over the last 50 years? Do you see any signs of what has happened to literature in the space that you've been studying it being disrupted, right? The history of American business has often been one of conglomeration followed by diversification, right? That there is usually some sort of antidote to the monopolization of a media. Oftentimes it has to do with a disruption by a new media. We're at what, big five now, big four, possibly soon. At some point, it's just one, right? You can't go any further. How do you see conglomeration what path do you see it following in the the coming decades? So it, it's hard to say. One thing that was fascinating recently was the decision by Florence Pan in the lawsuit the Department of Justice brought against Penguin Random House in its attempt to acquire Simon & Schuster, which would have brought the big right. five down to the big four. Right. That Flor- The judge in that case blocked the merger, which was really like it was a huge trial for everyone who has any like interest in publishing or relationship to it. Everyone was paying attention to it. And you didn't know how it was going to play out. And the fact that was blocked suggested a sort of limit for the moment to any further like reduction of the big five though that what the mm-hmm. fact that it was penguin random house which is by far the biggest mm-hmm. and simon schuster which i think is the third biggest which would have combined right. made it like a super big one like potentially 40 percent or 50 percent of the total industry was like if it had been say hachette and simon and schuster maybe it could have gone through and we would have had a big four but that but there was a marking there, like the government said we're marking a boundary yeah the thing i would i would say in Also, the conglomerate publishing industry controls something like 80% of trade publishing. That still means there's 20%. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I track in the book and and remain extremely interested in and try to talk about often when I'm speaking about the book or when I'm writing publishing industry-related essays is all of the dynamic things that happen in that 20%. It all works dialectically and in relation to one another within this larger economy. So a big part of that 20% is the nonprofit world, which emerged explicitly in the 1980s to contest conglomeration in a moment when conglomeration became particularly inimical to people in the literary world. And I think in the 21st century, we've seen a particular rise of the dynamism of small press world, especially with works in translation. I mean, we still live in an extremely provincial country and an extremely small number of translations, but there's been active work by people like Chad Post at Open Letter, who created the 3% uh, project to try to publicize this few numbers of translations that we have in this country, which has been the part of a larger movement by Edwin Frank at NYRB, by the folks at Transit out in California who are doing Jan Fossa, by Archipelago Books, by Europa, which is an arm of an Italian publisher based in the U.S., by Deep Vellum down in Texas, by the old stalwarts, Coffeehouse, Grey Wolf, and Milkweed. There's just a lot happening there. And I always want to make sure people are paying attention to the wonderful dynamic work that is happening, specifically in the shadow of and resisting and against and trying to create a lively world of literature outside of the more insular conglomerate ecology. Yeah. Building a little bit off of what Dan just said and the relationship between the sort of conglomeration of media 
and the financialization of the university. And I think, as Dan was mentioning, the sort of thriving of in independent presses and the kind of activism in independent publishing, I, I was also thinking about the role that university presses have played in creating a more diversified space. And certainly West Virginia Press has been at the forefront of that. They published Disha Filia's Secret Lives of Church Ladies, which won the National Book Award, the kind of voice that gets ignored within that big five ecology, but who got a million dollar contract on the back of the National Book Award. And I know that the editor was the director, a director uh, has, has left in, in the wake of what's going on at West Virginia. And so I was curious if you had thoughts about this sort of relationship between corporate publishing and university publishing and the sort of neoliberalization, financialization of the university. It's been one of the hardest blows for me at WVU. I think for many of us at the institution and for the larger world as well in the wake of what's happened to us this year. One of my very early experiences at WVU was, I think within weeks of when I got there, Derek Krisoff, the director of WVU Press, sent me an email asking if I recommended that they republish Muriel Rukeyser's The Book of the Dead, that they had the opportunity to do. And did I think that was a good idea? And I said, absolutely, yes, this is a really interesting book. It's relevant for the region. I think there's increasing attention to Rukeyser. And that book I know is assigned all the time in modern poetry courses. It's an early example of documentary poetics. It's about the Hawk's Nest Mine disaster in West Virginia. And Derek Krisoff, who then became a friend of mine and is still a friend of mine, resigned before, I think he resigned in the spring, maybe over the summer, before the budget crisis at WVU was really underway, partly because he could see the shape of it already and didn't want to countenance it, which I really admire. Again, he's a friend of mine. And I know a number of authors who were supposed to publish at WVU Press pulled their books. And it's really both sad and dumb because the press made money <laughs> for the university. It was not subsidized by the university and was such a jewel at WVU. So that's just been like a real calamity. More generally, it's hard for me at WVU right now to see what's going to happen next on the large scale and on the smaller scales, like the students are still there and are still awesome. And that's real. And I have extraordinary colleagues there as well. But the divestment from public education across the country, I think we're just still seeing the beginnings of the fallout from that. And without some kind of large scale legislation, probably, and also organization, it's hard to see how that doesn't get worse. Although I also do feel not despairing about the organization, which is happening. Our Boston Review essay was the second most read piece this year there. I saw that, yeah. Which I think speaks to people's attention, but also the unionization efforts underway everywhere have just been remarkable mm -hmm. to witness as someone who uh, has never gotten to be part of a union, either as a graduate student or a faculty member. Likewise. And I do hope that those will eventually translate into the kind of legislation that we would need to restore funding to public institutions. That was Joanna Winant and Dan Sinekin. For more about this episode, 
please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash steel or subscribe to my substack at theamericanvandal.substack.com. Until next time, here are the steel wheels with this year. Thanks for listening. This year there will be peace. This year there will be peace. This year there will be peace. There will be peace. There will be. Peace for my sister and my brother. Peace for my sister and my brother. Peace for my friends and for the others. There will be peace. All of your marriages are healthy. All of your children are strong. This is the year that you'll be wealthy. It won't be too long. Your cat is grateful for your friendship. He is effusive with his praise. He runs to you when you call him. These are the good days. My mom will know how much I love her. My mom will know how much I care. I always do forget to write her, but she is always there. When my father's day is over, when my father's work is done, tell him I am proud to know him and to be called his son. This year you won't get any older. This year you won't turn gray. All of the songs we sing are bolder. All these words will pass away. There is no need to worry. There is no worry here. There is no need to worry. There will be peace this year.